This is She Sparks Tech, a podcast about women who take technology to heart in their careers. We will explore stories about women who think creatively, find new directions, solve problems, and chase passions, all through technology. I'm your host, Casey Bertelsman, and I am excited about showcasing amazing women and their careers, covering both expected and unexpected directions to expand our idea of tech careers, and in hopes of inspiring each of us to think a little bit bigger. Hello, hello, and thank you for coming back to listen to the second half of my interview with Deborah. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back to the previous episode so you won't miss anything. Now let's dive right back in. Yeah, it's where you start to really see the beauty of the multidisciplinary team because someone who is doing your marketing, you know, ideally probably a tech marketer, someone who knows how to communicate with the team building something, even if they aren't going to understand every single little piece, they know how to pull out the details that really matter. Right. Yes. And, you know, you can be a great marketer. That doesn't mean you're going to be a great marketer in every industry in tech or tech in general. You have to be a person who can communicate with the people who are very, very technical. And ideally, someone on the technical team has the ability to communicate back in lay speak because every different area of tech specialization is not going to be able to immediately communicate with another one. That's true. That's true. And so I think you're right. I think anyone, any marketer who comes into a tech company needs to really get up to speed quickly on how to technically talk about the company, even at a general level, right? Um, but I, I also think that, well, I mean, I guess I think that's the main point, right? You need to be able to communicate. And then in the end, always think about the customer, like what's going to get them to buy. It's not always going to be about the is the product good enough? It's going to be about, have you messaged how the product is going to meet the pain points or make, you know, uh, or eliminate the pain points, right, for the buyer? And that's going to be different depending on the the buyer. And there might be several buyers within one organization. Uh, and you got to get them all on board. And so, you know, how, it's kind of an art, not a science of how do you get that message across without bombarding with too much technical information all at once, right? So you've got to peel that onion to understand the product better. And But it's also helpful to understand that as the product's being built, how is it getting, how does it fit within the workflow of those who are using that product, right? And so the more that you could make it fit into their current workflow rather than have them create a completely new process for this product, the easier it'll be. So it's important to kind of understand the pain points of all of the users as well, so that this way you could, you know, streamline, I guess, the, the, the processes. Yeah, you want people to buy into it instead of, you know, having resistance every step of the way with every client that implements it, because people are going to come back and be like, it was so, so painful to go through this process. And ideally, they get to the end, they're like, it was worth it. But sometimes there will be instances where it was like, it was not worth everything that took to get it here because we had to change everything else. Right, right, right. And then maybe you don't know that till the end. So it's like, yeah, those cost benefit uh, scenarios definitely need to be looked at. You definitely, you know, this is just part of planning. And I would think part of the executive planning for the year is understanding those 
other levers? Like if you introduce some complexity here, what's that going to add complexity to that we now need human being, more human beings, or we maybe need to shift this to a pilot for next year or, you know, what, what, whatever that is. But, but if you're looking to mature your privacy practices or the way I look at it is stop the, like compliance costs are expensive. The more compliance you have to do, the more costs you have. What if you, you know, instead of letting the dam have that leak that you're then plugging up with your GRC teams, what if we just stopped the leak and then you had less compliance stuff to do, right? It just, it, it you know, it seems like it should present itself naturally as being the obvious choice, but sometimes it takes you know, someone like myself to, to make that clear that like, look, we like a great example is my fiance works in bug bounty programs. And so when, as security bugs come in, there's these triage teams that go and like fix the bugs. Right. And that could take longer than hackers would like. So it's like, why is this bug not fixed yet? Right. Whatever. But then at a certain point, you're like, well, we're getting all of these bug reports. Like, what do we do to like fix the, the larger challenges? Like this team clearly keeps coding up the, you know, the same type of security bug. Why don't we teach them? Like, why don't we do a training that addresses that issue? And then hopefully that like people won't ship that bug anymore. Right. And so then you could start once you start measuring things, you could start deploying resources and fixing them. And I think the same is with privacy. And so I think what gets measured gets dealt with. So the, the good news is things are maturing. If you want to mature the organization, there's tools out there. There's companies that are constantly, um, well, I don't want to say constantly, but there's, there's um, an explosion, a, a growth in this space that is really giving me a, a real sense of we're finally going to get this privacy stuff under control. Like I, I actually believe in like 15, 20 years, we're going to have like very, very few privacy challenges based on a lot of the tech that's coming out, even though a lot of the tech that's coming out is privacy invasive. I think that there are some architectural exciting things like self-sovereign identity and combined with local processing and other things that will give us the ability to control what is shared with third parties or not and things stored on our devices so that it'll require companies to compete on trust. They won't be able to get our data anymore the way that they have been over the past like 20 years uh, without assurances and our permission and, and things along those lines. So I'm very optimistic about where things are going for privacy in the future, even though maybe it feels like it's scarier times with like, you know, chat GPT and um, I don't know, just, just a, a, so many people evolving so many different technologies right now that it might seem more dire. I just, I'm seeing what's coming in terms of the tech to counter that. And um, I'm enthused. So I want, I do want people to realize that I'm not just, I don't think that the world is bleak and that, you know, we're never going to have privacy. I think it's just not obvious uh, about how we're, we're tackling that. And that in the next several years, it'll become a little more obvious and people will have more, um, they, they'll mentally feel like they have more protection over their own personal data. Yeah. So if we were to talk just a little bit about personal data based on your background and what you know about privacy, what kind of tactics or suggestions do you implement when you go to, you sign up for something or, you know, how closely do you read privacy policies or what are things to look for 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, so there's there's multiple questions in there that I hear. It's like, well, what, I I thought you were going to ask like what what are some strategies I tell companies to to do to address their privacy, and that would be you know to view privacy as restraint. So instead of saying like, oh, we could do that, you know, privacy laws don't say we can't. It would be more like we should not collect data unless there's a good use for it. It's, you know, so it's the opposite of the big data collection kind of ethos. Um, we'll collect everything and we'll figure out a use for it later. It's if you don't have a use for it now, don't collect it. Or, you know, be more strategic about what your purpose for collection is so that you do know why you collect everything. This is now required by law. So you want to really understand, especially in the EU, like, what are the purposes for what you're collecting and how are you going to use it today? And you also want to know as you get more mature, how are you going to use things in the future so that you can do the things today to it to make sure that, you know, you could still have it around or, or, or get the permissions to aggregate it or get the, you know, whatever it is you need to do with it in the future that you're thinking in advance. I would also, you know, definitely look at just the different privacy enhancing technologies that are on the market. When it comes to, what do I do or what can we as lay, you know, what can lay people do as they're, as they're looking at different companies? I would see what assurances companies are actually like saying, like, are they saying, Oh, we, we, you know, trust us with your privacy because we think privacy is important, which basically says a whole lot of nothing. Or are they saying things like we, we never do X with your data. You know, when you press this button, this, deletes the data permanently from our records, you know, like if they're making very specific assurances, I would say I would have personally more trust in them because they've went above and beyond. And the fact that they're making that assurance to me says that they believe that assurance because, you know, these are all public statements. It's one thing to say privacy is important to us and then like not do a privacy protective thing. It's another to say publicly in the privacy policy that we will protect your data in a certain way and then that way is violated, right? You go in, you said you're encrypted, it's not encrypted, now there's a breach, you can sue. Or the FTC could go after them for, for unfair trade practices. So I think the more assurances that I see from a company around privacy, the more I trust them. No, of course, I don't read every single privacy notice. I, I don't think anyone does. We recognize as a field that this is a major challenge. I don't know what the answers are going to be other than I do know that there are plenty of people that have tried in the past, and I bet they'll try in the future, and we might have in the future, uh, some machine-readable way of reading privacy policies and servicing some risks for people that are just like, should I trust this website based on this privacy policy? I can't point to one that's really great out there, but I just know there's been attempts at making it not just machine readable, but also like a nutrition label style kind of ability to view and quickly understand the health, so to speak, of of, of the privacy policy. Um, I do know there's there's some companies that are working on creating like, like a security scorecard or uh, basically they scan websites to be able to surface where does this one have risk versus another based on what they're publicly stating. But doing that for, you know, the, the privacy policies and stuff, well, but they're still kind of coming to market. So it's not... 
anything that I can point to yet and say, you know, this is definitely like the way it's going. But I do think we're going to start to see more and more companies that are trying to surface the practices of other organizations based on their code so that like we could go scan a third party company's website and say, here's some of the challenges we are seeing from a privacy perspective, or maybe even beyond that into other things, risk, like financial perspective, whatnot, who knows. But that's not quite ready for prime time yet. Yeah. And there's there's challenges with notice, right? I think notice and choice is just not enough. We've spent maybe 20 years too many overly focused on notice and choice and not focused enough on doing the actual protecting of the data where it lives, right? I mean, if you only just look at like Cambridge Analytica, for instance, when uh, Facebook was like, oh, I don't know how they, you know, they 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 when it they violated our contract by scraping this data. And you're like, yeah, did you put any controls down to prevent the scraping of that data? No. So, you know, it's kind of like, why are you, yes, they violated a contract, Facebook, but you also did nothing to prevent them from doing that. So there's definitely more we need to put on companies that are large conveners of people. So whether they're huge e-commerce sites, huge social networking sites, but like those big app stores, like these are the places where there should be an extra onus on the purveyors of those businesses uh, to make safe, you know, it's not enough to be like, we had this in contract. You, you know what I'm saying? Like you need to make your actual, uh, if you're having, if you're building with network effects and trying to get as many people into your network as possible, then it, you should be making that network safe. And I don't think, I think companies should be investing a lot more money into ethics, safety, safe AI, unbiased AI, right? Like privacy, uh, moderation and trust and safety, all of that, right? All of that is, needs to be in, um, you know, Facebook has been for years wanting to say it's other people's fault or Congress hasn't acted. You could fucking act, you know, I'm sorry. You could, you could, <laughs> it's you true. <laughs> like, you don't need an act of Congress to actually make your own company safe. So I, I, you know, there's a lot of lip service out of um, the big tech companies. I think they need to do better. And the crazy thing is they're the ones that hire the largest number of privacy engineers because uh, they have the biggest engineering problems when it comes to privacy because uh, they've collected so much personal data. Uh, and right now it's a matter of an existential threat of like, will they still have businesses as people are, you know, as the EU has been pushing GDPR requirements in the US and we're, ha and we're getting more and more aware as individuals as to how companies have been extorting from us uh, value of our personal data from us without giving us any sort of anything pecuniary back. So I think with all of those trends, there's this existential crisis of, oh, we need to make our we're in the place we want to be now. Now they want to make the, everything safe, uh, but make it still look like Congress is the one that's preventing them. So I, it's not true. Uh, let's just keep holding them to account, and then just ensuring that they're they're putting ethical you know guardrails in place. I mean that part we're going to have to depend on you know government regulators for that, whether it's FTC or rulemaking and um, anyway. I'm babbling now. <laughs> and I mean, one one other question out of that, you know, the EU has different requirements currently than the US because the US has essentially nothing. California is trying to do some stuff. I heard mixed reviews on how it's actually going. So as there's different, you know, ground rules put into place, how does that impact the the technologies that are trying to be built to put into place for people? 
That's a great question. I don't think it impacts the technology itself. I think the challenge is if, if someone's like, oh crap, this affects us. Now we need to go deal with the CCPA, California, you know, California's law problem, or we need to go deal with the GDPR problem. If each of these are all separate problems, instead of just, we're going to go create a privacy strategy, you, you know, companies are going to have a real hard time. Uh, most organizations have already that had to comply with GDPR requirements have already gotten started on those projects since GDPR has been in, in place for several years now. CCPA is different in that it's more if you're if you didn't have a an EU presence, let's say you were only a company in the United States, let's say you were a cable provider in the United States, you never had to care about GDPR because you weren't ever going to be signing anyone up who's physically located in the EU, right? So you never did anything. So if you're starting from scratch and only like trying to figure out the problem now for CCPA, even though like 90% of CCPA is the same as GDPR, it's the same, You basically the idea that you need to give rights to people. So, oh, I have a new right. I need, I need, I have a right to know what data is being held about me. That means you as a business now have an obligation to meet that right. That means you're going to need to re-architect some things like, well, how do we get a data subject access request report in the hands of somebody? What does that look like? Do I need a tool? Do I need to create a process? Right? So that's starting from scratch. Assuming that they already have dealt with the GDPR stuff and then they just need to do CCPA, what we're really looking at is the additional requirements of allowing people to opt in to advertising over a certain age and then like I think opt in over age 16, between age 13 and 16. I don't, don't hold me on that exactly. I, I, I do know there's like a small opt-in part. And then there's being able to relay as an organization who you've shared personal da data with. What third-party organizations did you share Deborah Farber's data with, right? Like that is hard because if you didn't even collect who lives in California to begin with, and you just know you have, you know, maybe, maybe in the example I use, you'd know where their service location is. But if you knew you had U.S. customers, but you don't know where they live because that was not part of your business model to know what state they're from. How are you going to, you know, only show the Californians this process, right? So at a certain point, you might have to just apply it to every state because you don't know who's in California. So every company is going to be different based on what requirements they haven't accounted for yet. I really see, so the U.S. has approached privacy law as more of a data protection, right? You need to show harm as a consumer, consumer harm before we're ever going to give you any sort of money in a lawsuit. The EU is not like that. The EU is like, no, everybody's got certain human rights. Privacy is one of them. And uh, data protection and privacy are embedded and enshrined in, in, in federally at, in the EU at, uh, for GDPR. But then there's also all of these rules around the e-privacy act, which is what actually interacting with people. So you can't just look at GDPR. That's just about, do you have a legal basis to do the thing? Then you need to look at e-privacy to see about how you're interacting with the people. And, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a different set of obligations. So anyway, the point is, in the EU, I would say that they're way less mature when it comes to dealing with like all the compliance. The US just generally has much more of a compliance culture that that like, so these rules are, I want to say they're following them more, but there's just broader rules in the EU with less enforcement. And and the US, there's it's less of a human right. It's not enshrined as a human right in the United States. It is in certain state 
constitutions, but it's not, you know, at the federal level. And we, we are not going to pass a federal law anytime soon. I've been saying this for about last five years. We're not going to pass federal law anytime soon. The political will is not there. And don't let anyone fool you when they're like, you have all the comp- companies, all the tech companies going, we want, a, we want a federal privacy law. Yes, you do. You want one on different terms than the rest of the world wants them. Um, the challenge here, the reason we can't have nice things has nothing to do with privacy. It all has to do with, you know, things like, if there's a federal privacy law, is are we is the federal government barring the states from having more protective privacy, right? So California has a state privacy law. They think it's pretty good. They don't want a federal privacy law to water down the one that they have. And so you're not getting cooperation from from California and the senators there to like move forward a federal law that's going to weaken their state law, right? And so there's all, but then there's like, you know, is this law, who does the law apply to? Does it apply to the federal government too? Or is it just private industry, right? Like Congress exempts themselves from everything. Or what good is it if like our federal government keeps violating privacy laws, right? But we're get, but we got the private sector under control. GDPR applies to everybody, right? It doesn't say oh, only businesses that make this amount of money, right? So in the U.S., I would say there's much more of a patchwork, and then there's like this problem of like the trial lawyers association versus business. Businesses are afraid. Large businesses are afraid that if you gave people the right to sue if their privacy right was violated, uh, that they would just have a never ending barrage of lawsuits, right? Like it's just gonna be like, great, I'm gonna file a lawsuit today and hope I get this money from this company. And that they'll just eventually go out of business or it's just gonna become just, you know, something that they don't wanna open the floodgates of uh, litigation. On the other hand, people, you know, should feel like they should have the right to sue. Um, If I feel violated or if I was harmed and my only recourse was to go to a regulator and complain about it and just hope that they do something about it, like, I I think we're past that in the United States. I don't think any individual is going to feel like our privacy is being protected under that, like scalably at least, under that paradigm. And so we want a right to sue, but at the same time, you're, you, you, so, so this is, these are the tensions. The reason we don't have a privacy law has nothing to do with the fact that neither side wants one. It's that neither side can agree on what's in it. Uh, and the things they can't agree on have nothing to do with privacy. And so I just think we're at an impasse. I don't think, I think we have, you know, Biden would be willing to sign one, but I don't think we're going to be able to get it through Congress because the, the, the pro-business and the, you know, uh, pro-consumer rights sides of that house or the Senate, whatever, they're they're not in agreement. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot they are in agreement on, so. I'm not even following it anymore. There's no day-to-day palace intrigue even. It's just, you know, another state might come up with another law, and I personally could care less. <laughs> I mean, you've got all the law firms, and, you know, everyone's analyzing how does this compare against that one or this one, and, like, does it matter? I'm using GDPR, as a guide for what, you know, or I'm using the NIST privacy framework or the ISO privacy by design, you know, for consumer goods and services framework, or, you know, use an industry agnostic framework to deploy your privacy in your organization that meets all of the goals and not just uh, one particular law. Because if you do that, you're just boxing yourself into a corner. Yeah, it's not, we're looking for the shortest checklist. It's what is actually, what's the meaning behind the checklist? And let's go with that. 
Right. I mean, and it might it might take a pause to be like, I don't know what is the meaning behind this, and having to do some research and whatnot. But I think that pausing and 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 doing that analysis is is essential so that you can step back and have the broader view of like, what are we building towards, right? What process are we building towards, or what product are we building towards, or what customer base are we building towards, right? And always just factoring the privacy, ethics, safety, trust, all of that in there. And I think if we just ask. Like if this were us and this was our data and just like, you know, get rid of the word user in our in our heads and instead insert humans and like remembering that like users at scale sounds so impersonal, right? But if we're talking about millions of humans at scale, like all of a sudden, you know, I, I, I hope that gives people more pause to ensure that we're doing the right things with the data and or maybe this would be a good time to prompt people about their thoughts on this or do you want to still keep this maybe we should delete this for you you know like just just really about respecting individuals yeah it'll it'll be really interesting to see how more of it comes together as i'm sure more states start to take things into their own hands and start to hopefully push for change. Hopefully consumers continue to push for change and looking for what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope, I, I hope so too. I'm not sure it's the silver bullet for us. The reason I say that is like, we've been trying to get one, not one federal uh, data breach notification law for, for like 15 years. And even that, just to have like, how do you notify people when there's a breach, right? And what what are the triggers for it? And what do I say? Who do I have to notify? Who do I have to report to? Because notifying and reporting are different things. Uh, and we still couldn't get one law around that. Something so simple. And we have them in all 50 states, or maybe they're in like 48 states that cover 50 states. Um, I just don't believe, if we couldn't get it done for that, I just, I don't believe we're going to have a federal privacy law in the United States um, that is omnibus. Obviously, we have federal privacy laws, like we said before, they're sectoral, but like something like comprehensive, like GDPR or HIPAA, even that that applies to you know more than just a single area. Um, I think would be really comprehensive, uh, but I just don't see that happening. I see. Uh, I see that every company wants a federal law because who wants to have to go to lawyers and say, I need to comply with 50 different states versions of something. What do I need to do where the Delta is? But the result of pushing back against allowing lawsuits, <laughs> uh, what, what industry has done is they've created, a, 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 they're, they're creating a separate patchworks of privacy laws. And so they're just, it's really just, they're working, they're, eating, they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. And I'll pick your favorite analogy, but... The result is a patchwork, a variety of state laws, some of which are laughably um, non-protective and others of which have like some meat behind them. So, you know, I don't know. Is that a good thing that each state has varied types of, you know, some are good laws, some are shitty laws. And then, you know, we keep talking like we're going to be passing a federal law, but I don't see the pathway for it to be passed. Maybe the focus shouldn't be about the law. <laughs> And you're right, maybe the focus isn't about the law. It's about education and expectation and where, you know, where should we be finding this information as the consumers? What should we be pushing for? How do we find what that looks like? There's so many things that we don't even understand and you learn in pieces, um, things that we don't even realize are issues until they become an issue. That's exactly right, right? If you set consumers' expectations a certain way, <laughs> I think failing those expectations is a huge 
market failure, right? So I, I think we as consumers have a lot more power. I think it just took us a lot longer to understand how much we were the product uh, as opposed to buying products from these companies. We've been the product. And now that we've woken up to it, and there's a whole bunch of movements out there, right? Everything from the creator movements to, you know, decentralization of power movements to there's a lot going on right now that I think, you know, just adding ethics and in, into things that there's there's a we could throw our power around together to demand change from companies that has nothing to even do with the law. Right. So I don't know what that necessarily looks like. It could be, you know, the news and getting the, you know, getting getting people together to hold accountable, more activism style uh it could be whistleblowers. It could be, but the point is that there, there's more of awareness and understanding by your lay people about the transgressions that tech companies have been laying out there. Yes, I'm really curious to see what'll be starting, who'll be out there, and how we find ways to protect ourselves and advocate for what we want and what we're really looking to see here. Um, we've seen some examples set in the EU, but we haven't seen anything here yet. We have individual companies doing good things. We have plenty that are really pushing against it. We'll hear a lot. Will we'll there be movement? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, Deborah, I really think that this is something that you and I could talk about all day. There is so much going on here. We are going to see a lot of movement, and this is already a really, really long episode, so I think it's probably good that we wrap up um, I think we kind of reached a good spot on this topic here. So if anyone is looking to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they can find you? Oh, yeah. Well, you I could follow me on, on Twitter the days that I'm still there. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm privacy guru on most places. So, so Twitter, privacy guru, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, I'm really avid there. Uh, and uh, if you wanted to email me, you can reach out to Deborah at shiftingprivacyleft.com. And tune in on Tuesdays, uh, every Tuesday for a new episode of uh, Shifting Privacy Left. And thanks so much for joining me, Deborah. Oh, I'm so glad. This was really fun. So I think this is the first guest that I've done the interview as a two-part episode series. I loved how it gave us a chance to talk so much, especially as online security, web security is such a hot topic right now. You'll find all kinds of great links in the episode show notes again, how to get in touch with Deborah or how to stay up to date with me and the podcast. Again, I want to ask you to rate, review, and subscribe. Share with people who would love the episode. It means so much to me being able to see my little show grow and hopefully land in the ears of someone who needs some inspiration or even a friend. And this is the last chance for the month to leave a review on Apple for the podcast, or you can send me a voice message on Anchor about why you love the podcast and follow up with me because I'm offering 30-minute coaching sessions to talk about career, tech transition, and I am offering five for the first five people who send these out during the month of June. And so you'll find all the details in the show notes for how to do that. And it means so much if you take two, three minutes to do so, it helps my little show grow. And then I know how much it means to you. I will see you again in two weeks and I hope you stay well. Cheers. Cheers.